had a weapon on one side of your hip and you had your pocket tools on the other side, on the other hip. There were snipers in the trees outside of your compound. They would be ever so willing to take a pot shot if one of the other electricians was up on a pole tying wires together. He'd be an easy shot. Bob Bruzak went to Vietnam not so much to fight, but to build. Bob was a CB, one of what's known as the Navy's Construction Battalion, thus the shortened version, CB. They're the skilled tradesmen, the carpenters, plumbers, electricians, heavy equipment operators who build the bases and the roads where conflict rages. And they are called on to fix things that are broken in combat. That very much places them in harm's way. And that's where Bob Bruzak found himself 56 years ago. You were a CB, and I suspect some people don't know what a CB is. What does uh, a CB do? CBs are generally anything in construction the CBs can do, whether it's electrical, plumbing, carpentry, building bridges, putting in uh, runways, putting in water treatment uh, facilities. They did uh, a fair amount of helping for getting Vietnamese children, starting to play with the kids, getting them used to Americans being there because we literally took over their whole country and they, they just, poor people sat back and, and watched everything happen, you know. One of the you, guys, things. you guys were there to build bases, to build airstrips, to do right. all, to put together all the infrastructure that, that we needed. Correct. The war in Vietnam had been building so much that the CBs themselves weren't ready to put that many hooches up, like barracks for the men, the chow halls that had to be put in, medical facilities that had to be put in, water treatment plants. If they had uh, airports, they had to be expanded for you know, to be able to take larger planes, much larger planes, you know, helicopters, and you name it, anything that had to be done. Uh, the CBs were there to do it. And you had a particular skill, which was you were an electrician. I was a construction electrician. I'm a construction electrician, retired now. Uh, at the time, I had gone through four years of uh, uh, apprenticeship in, in Chicago, 134 in Chicago. I then uh, decided that uh, my draft number was probably going to be getting pretty close so I thought, well, go down to the local recruitment center uh, just to see where I could uh, fit in. Uh, I walked into the door. Uh, there were four desks there, of which one man was sitting at one desk. The other three, from what I understood, were out to lunch. And they, each one of those guys represented a branch of the service. That's correct. Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force. Air Force, that's right. So and with the only my guy luck, who was in was <laughs> was a Navy guy. Okay. okay. Uh, he looks at me and he says, uh, "You're you're kind of old for coming in here." And I says, "Well, I says I just finished a, a four-year apprenticeship as an electrician in Chicago." And he looks at me and he says, "Wow, have I got a job for you if you if you want to fit in?" I says, "What's that?" He says, "The Navy Seabees have got a program." to try and get civilian people who've done construction work outside of the, the Navy into the Navy uh, to do the construction necessary for the buildup in Vietnam. They were sending uh, servicemen over there, 150, 200,000 at a time, and uh, they just had no place to put them. So they, they needed somebody to do all the construction, so they got 
went to the outside, to the general public, men of service age, who had the, the background, and they took them into the, into the United States Navy Seabees. And this was attractive to you also because the recruiter is saying that you can go in at a higher rank That's because true. of your electrical qualification, right? <laughs> That's true. The recruiter also told me, if you do go in, we just ask one thing, that you don't tell anybody how you got in, because if you had three to five years as a, a journeyman uh, of, of anything, carpentry, electrical, that you can get in as an E4. If you had five to seven years, that you can get in as an E5. If you had seven plus two years as a, as a foreman, you can get in as an E6. Uh, that would be a petty officer first class. I got in as a petty officer second class, and that was where they tell me, um, just don't tell anybody around you that's in the Navy, because <laughs> they will rip you a new one. <laughs> if, don't don't if tell they them find out Navy it, guys, because no, they're not no, going to be it, happy it with takes, that. Right, right. It, it, it's, it's taken them three and a half <laughs> years to get to the point where you're walking in the door right now. So just keep it to yourself. And I really did, uh, up until the time that I, I left the Navy, most of the time for the Navy, you're in for four years. Uh, they just needed me for two, of which one of them had to be a year in Vietnam. Did you know when you went in and talked to him that you were likely going to go to Vietnam? He, he said that there's a 90% chance of going to Vietnam. So I, I knew that I didn't have much of a choice. You know, so I would be going to Vietnam. What were your thoughts? You're going to Vietnam. You're going as a CB. You you know your task is going to be, but you're going to Vietnam. Correct. And Correct. you've watched the buildup, the number of people who are being called. I've been. Over. I was keeping uh, right. I was keeping keeping abreast of the the way that the war was building up, and I knew you know the CBs weren't prepared. Like nobody was actually prepared. To, to send as many men to a country halfway around the world uh, it's such a short period of time. You know, it was almost like D-Day. Everything had to be built up uh, right then and there. So being an electrician, I landed the job with uh, the Navy Seabees at Fubai, and we ran four 750 kW generators uh, which were housed in trailers uh, without wheels on skids. These are giant electrical generators that Correct. power right. the whole place at Fubai? Right. The, yeah, whole the whole base? place in Fubai. Okay. They, they had uh, many, many smaller generators sporadic throughout the whole area. They weren't that, de that dependable anymore. You know, they were, they were small units. They decided to put in a big, a big supply powerhouse. So basically that's what we were there for. We don't think often of the necessity to have all this infrastructure. I mean, when you're mounting a prolonged campaign, which is right. what Vietnam was, that's correct. You, you've got to have facilities. You've got to have electricity. Sure, sure. And this is not cheap either. These each one of these electrical generators, they were multi-million dollar each one. You know, so and they were brand spanking new when we got them. Fubai just kept on expanding. You know, it was a huge place. Oh yeah, yeah, it was. And it came under attack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on a number of occasions. Yeah. Uh, it was infrequently before Tet and during Tet, Tet from uh, January 30th to I think around April 1st is when Tet was finally over. And we had uh, pretty, pretty much constant incoming. Uh, 
both in, in mortars and rockets. Uh, the mortars were for starters, and then they were getting Russian rockets, and those things were like whistling, screaming women when they come in, so you, had, you, you could hear them coming. So all you had a chance to do was, would be duck if you were close to a, a, a bunker. bunker. You, got the right, bunker. you got into the bunker right away. Yeah. What was a day like? Depending on the weather, I mean, uh, there could be beautiful days. I mean, it was almost constantly always like 105, 110 degrees normal. But a, a day when uh, when you're under attack, mm -hmm. um, were, you, you were telling me earlier that you could almost set your watch by some of yeah, the attacks. Yeah, for some reason, they were, they were timing. We were number three on Charlie's hit list. The first was the Fubai airport, and then you'd, you'd be quiet for a few minutes, and then they'd be going, and then they'd start to be hitting the water treatment plants or some of the ammunition dumps that were sporadically, you know, placed around. And then we were Charlie's number number three on his hit list. So about 10 minutes to this one, 10 minutes to that one. Then you figure, okay, it's time to get into the, into the bunkers because we know it's our turn next. So they would they would send in a few uh, mortars or rockets in our direction. Was this nighttime or daytime? Uh, it was it was both. It would have been both. The four generators had we had rocket revetment walls that were eight foot high and two foot thick, filled with sand. That if any one of our four generators got hit directly, the, another one would be able to pick up the load right away, and we'd have to do. Uh, repair whatever we can do to get that one back up again. If it was totaled out, uh, it would be a, a real, real problem for us. Because were there we, occasions when uh, the generators were hit and never, you had to get back out never, and work Never, on? yeah. We were never hit directly. Because the CBs, a lot of times, you, you guys are vulnerable. you got to be out working to repair things that That's are right. broken you, you had due a, to combat. You had, a, you had a weapon on one side of your hip and you had your pocket tools on the other side, on the other hip. <laughs> Uh, you had your flak jacket that you had to have on. You had your helmet on as much as you can Be because uh, there were uh, snipers in the trees outside of your compound that they would be ever so willing to take a pot shot. If, if one of the other electricians was up on a pole tying wires together, he'd be an easy shot. You, know? you tried to spend as little time up at the top of the pole as possible and hurry up and get done, get down. The frequency of these attacks, they're, they're very regular in nature. Did you find yourself getting at all complacent about it? Was it just part of the routine? Or when the shells, when the whistling women, <laughs> when you heard yes. that sound, did you hightail it to the bunker right away? Or did this kind of become, well, here we go again, same old thing? Yeah, yeah. It, you, not to say that you get immune to it, but I mean, uh, after a while, you figure, geez, you know, how long is our luck going to last? They would hit the uh, uh, the runways uh, at the airport, and we'd have to send a guy, a couple of guys out there with a with a small truck, because most of the runway lights were just strung right on top of the ground under the matting. If if you were repairing the the, the lighting. Uh, for the runways, and more came in, their only chance would be just to just crawl under your truck and hope for the best. They're, they're definitely you're out in the, You're way out, in the way, open, way out in the open, yeah. yeah. Right. So, I mean, there, there were times where it was dangerous, to just, but just being in the country was dangerous. You didn't know where you were going to uh, 
get hit. I think the worst of it was the three months that we had uh, the Tet Offensive. It was such a complete surprise. For all of the American military, uh, they had no idea that the VC had this capability that they, they could have uh, hit us from uh, every major city, town, village, whatever, and do it all at one time. When did you realize in Fubai that this was a concentrated offensive and it was going to go on for a while and it was effective for... Oh, yeah, yeah, almost, almost three months, yeah. Almost like, like with the first week, I think we realized that we were getting hit a lot more frequently. The VC were able to uh, come in down through um, Cambodia and Laos and then sneak back in across the border because we weren't, the Americans weren't allowed to bomb outside of the country, uh, which is like having your one hand tied behind your back. Although that did come later on. It, it came later on with the B-52s, yeah. There was one time where uh, we heard a lot of explosions, many, many. We found out that B-52s were actually hitting outside of Vietnam, and we were close enough that the sand that was embedded in the screens of our hooches was on the floor it just the whole place just shook from the explosions of the from the b-52 strikes far away from you oh yeah yeah they were they were like 10 or 12 miles away you had to be there to to believe to to understand what was happening there was one occasion at fubai at the base when mortar or artillery comes in and hits very close to where you were. Right, right. If we were refueling, we had the uh, Marines are the ones that, that brought the fuel to us in their, in their uh, fueling trucks. We had an agreement with them because we, they had to hand us the hose through an opening in the outside of the generator. So when we were inside of a running generator, you know, you, you heard explosions outside, but you couldn't really tell if they were incoming or outgoing. If they were outgoing, the Marine was supposed to just let it go. If they were incoming, he was supposed to bang on the side of the door and let us know that it's incoming. Now to, you, and you are in the generator and at this We're point? in there, yeah, because okay. we, we had to hold the nozzle. One time, uh, we had a new truck driver, and he was refueling us, and we, we heard incoming, and we told him, hey, you know, you're supposed to let us know. And he says, oh, nobody told me that. And he says, well, I'm telling you that. You've got to let us know because we can't hear what's going on on the outside when we're inside and we're trying to refuel one of these generators. You know? He says, oh, man, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It won't happen again. I says, it better not. I'm <laughs> <laughs> sure. So what happens on this day when the mortar comes in and hits close to where you are. Okay, the one time the hooch or barracks next to us got hit, a direct hit, right through the tin roof. We didn't realize how close it was because all of us were already in the bunkers. We found out the next morning that the hooch right next to us, which was 25 feet away, was hit directly. And there there was almost nothing left inside. The cots all had airbags, air mattresses on them, which were all blown up. The foot lockers that the guys had at each one of their, their, their beds, shrapnel penetrated every foot locker and d- practically destroyed everything that was in each one of them. The screens were blown out naturally. Uh, the doors were hanging off of a hinge. Luckily, nobody got hurt because uh, we were already in the, in the bunkers. Well, if anybody had been in there, they wouldn't be alive. Correct.
You were showing me there were a couple of pieces of shrapnel. So what we're looking at now is that there are, these are pieces of shrapnel taken from that hooch. Correct. And this is really sharp, jagged metal. Yes. That if any of those guys were in there, there's no way they could have survived. Right, right. And this one larger piece, this one here, it looks like it was from, I think that one was a rocket. When you, when you picked this up, you obviously wanted to keep it. Why did you want to keep it? I wanted to prove to people back at home what, we're, what we were putting up with. The guys who called this place home, when they walked back to it and saw what was left and realized what would have happened had they been there, what did they say? Oh. They were uh, they were really sh shooken up, you know. They uh, they were told that they are not going to be able to sleep in there. Go inside one at a time, see if you can pick out anything that was that belonged to you that's salvageable. So that that whole barracks, uh, they never re did rebuild it though. They just tore it all down and leveled it off. Were you afraid at that time? Yeah, I, you never really have an idea of how bad it could be until you're actually in that situation. Did a lot of talking to God, that's for sure. This is another piece that you brought back from your experience. And yes. This is a metal stake about seven inches long. Looks yep. like a little arrowhead yep. on the end of it. Correct. And it's called a punji stake. Mm -hmm. and, and it's curled on the bottom. So if, if they're putting these things into a two by six or something like that. They nailed it in, they punched it through from the bottom and they, and they put like 25 or 30 of them in a board, okay? So they're all sticking up and they put cow dung on the top of them. So it's, it's like a, a, a poison. So somebody would get poisoned if, if they were to step on it. Okay, and it's, this is camouflage, There's a camouflage right? over the top of it. So you would, it would be in a pit, in the bottom of a pit that would, would have been dug. They put camouflage over the top of it, and if they, an American ran into it or fell into it, either through his body or through an arm or something like that, uh, it's going to take like two or three medics to get him out of there and probably a helicopter to get him to a, a hospital area zone. That's pretty scary. So, yeah, it, it is. And the whole point, as you say, is to... Uh, is if not kill, then certainly maim, maim and take out a service. That's correct. X number of people, medics, not just one medics, person, right? But, medics yeah. and helicopter uh, pilots and, and a helicopter. When you're there, you learn a lot about weather because you said you come in and you've got 105 degrees and whatever you're basically you're dealing with heat and humidity, but you're also dealing with torrential rains. Not the monsoons. What we, was that like? Well, with the, with the monsoon season, you had a monsoon season of, of three months. The dirt and the dust and the sand in that country is real soft like a woman's makeup, real, real light. But that same dust and, and sand would turn to a quagmire during the, the monsoon season where uh, deuce and half trucks would, would get stuck in it and anything would get stuck in it. You need other big... Uh, large trucks with a, a crane winch on the back of it to pull them out. And that was being done almost all the time. Was that a CB responsibility, or did that go to other units? Uh, what the CBs did is they'd, they'd have a, a front-end loader that they would drag across the, the paths of the ruts to straighten them back out again. take you to October 1967. At that point, how long had you been in country? Six months. 
All right. Mm-hmm. So you've done about half your tour. Right. And mm-hmm. on one particular night, you have a goodbye party for a couple of guys in your unit. Yes. They're fellow CBs. Yes. There were two fellows, George Guy and John Gillian the third. You, you get to know somebody uh, pretty well when you're working with them on a 24-hour basis. And they were two fellows who set the poles, they ran the cables, uh, they ran all the cables into all the buildings that were there, and we had worked closely with them. Both their tours were, were uh, done at the same time. Apparently they had gotten there about six months before I got there. And then the last six months, I got to know them pretty well. And on their last night, we threw a big party for them. Well, big to us was like nine guys. It was a, just a little bit of a beer fest. We wished them all the, the, the best in their, in their life to come. They were certainly glad to, to get out of Vietnam. And everybody gave hugs back and forth because we knew uh, they were leaving that evening. They were taking a chopper from Phu Bai to Da Nang and catch the big bird from Da Nang back to uh, USA. The next morning, our CO came into our barracks and told us that there was a uh, their plane crashed into in the middle of the night, crashed into a mountain shy of Da Nang, and everybody on board was killed. And we were just stunned. We were just absolutely stunned to think that somebody could go to Vietnam, spend 365 days there, and not get hurt at all. And, and be prepared. They were preparing to, to go home, and they never made it to Da Nang. I saw the obituary in, in the uh, news, and I cut it out, and I brought it home with me, and after a while at home, I had it laminated, and I had an asterisk next to each one of their two names under, under Navy, and I carry that um, in my hat uh, to any any military function or any military day, uh, uh, whether it's Veterans Day or, or anything, any of the other ones, any Memorial Days, and I keep them with me all the time. That's your way of honoring them. Yes, it is. Yes, they went with me to the to the wall. Uh, when I went uh, on the honor flight for Chicago. I was in the first flight that carried Vietnam veterans. I did, I did an etching of, of both their names. I was with you when you found the yes, names yes, on you the were. wall. Oh, here, George A. Guy. It's right here. John Gillian was here. Okay. And the reason they're so close is they both got killed at the same time. You touched the name. You said did an etching. Oh, yeah. And tell me what that moment meant to you. Was it a connection with those two fellas? Oh, yeah. There was, uh, you know, there was a lot of good memories that we had. I mean, it was all packed into just the six months that I knew them. But uh, like like I said before, you you get to really know somebody. You know, after the first week or two, you're talking about families, families that are left behind, uh, behind at home. What we did is, to, to show somebody how short we were getting in country, we took a chain, maybe about six inches long, and tied it through the lapel of our uh, outfit that we would have on. Every day that would go by, we would take a pair of cutters and cut off one, one chain link. So if you were walking around 
and you had a chain link with five or six days on it, people would be saying, holy smoke, he's only got five or six days left. Their chains got down to that one, that one day left, and they didn't leave in one piece. That's sad. How did your tour come to an end? Did you have a chain that you wore that had links on it, number of days left? And did um, you yes. have this sensation that I got to get the heck out of here yeah. <laughs> as soon as possible? One of my friends, Charles Nielsen, was, was stationed in Da Nang. And he left a message up with me. He says, Bob, he says, your name's on the list to go back home down here. Do you know about it? I didn't know about it. And he says, hey, Bob, he says, I want us to go back together. You know, so, you know, we did, you know, and uh, I tried calling Charlie for, for the longest time after we got back, and apparently he had moved. I would send Christmas cards, like for two or three Christmases. We would get him back and say undeliverable, you know, so apparently he had moved. So my wife says, Bob, let's, let's try this. She got on the Internet, and she found out the a name of a Charles uh, Nebelson, and she got the phone number. So I thought, oh, great. Charlie, after all this time. So I called, and a woman answers, hello. I says, uh, this is Bob Ruzik. I knew Charlie in uh, Vietnam, and uh, it, it took me all this time just to try and get a hold of him, and, and it was quiet for, for a fraction of a, a second. And she says, Bob, she says, it's nice to hear from you, but I've got some bad news. Chuck just passed away four months ago. And I says, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, so somebody to help get me out of Vietnam, you know, and they, we both lived separate lives, not knowing where each other was. What did he pass from? Uh, heart attack in his backyard. Oh. It just fell right on the ground, and that was it. I was so, so sad that I couldn't get in touch with him sooner because he uh, would have been a good long-distance friend. Oh, yeah. You know. Well, you, you get word that you're going home, and then the day arrives, and you're on your way out of country, going mm -hmm. back to the United States mm -hmm. of America. Yep. The flight itself was just unbelievable. When you leave uh, Da Nang, you've got about 150, 200 service guys going home for the first time in a year. It's kind of quiet because we're all sitting there with our thoughts, and the plane takes off. And after it gets off the ground, it feels like we only went up about 500, 600 feet, and we take this huge, huge turn to the left, and we're going, it almost sound, seemed like it was straight up. And we couldn't figure out what in the world was happening. And then the flight attendant gets on the PA and says, sorry guys, we forgot to tell you that when we leave Da Nang, we have to get out, up and out over the ocean as fast as we can because we don't want to take the chance of being hit by snipers. So, you know, with that thought in mind, I'm thinking, well, geez, thanks, but <laughs> you could have told us. <laughs> you know, with planes crashing and everything, you sit there and you think, my God, don't tell me we're going to wind up in the drink or something. When you arrived in the United States, what, uh, what kind of a reception did you get? I think just like a lot of other guys, we, uh, we weren't that well liked. Everybody that was in the service, I mean, when you get home, you just hope that your hair grows back fast enough so you don't look like you're in the service. You know, you have a fantastic tan from, from the waist up, 
you know, and you got this short haircut, and they think, boy, he must have just come back from overseas. Did you have any encounters like that? No, no. Luckily, no. Because by the time I got back to work, I, I contacted the electrical contractor that I had worked with previous to that, and I asked him when I was leaving if he thought that I could have a job back. And he says, well, Bob, he says, that sounds great. He says, I'll look forward to it in a couple of years when you get back. So after I came back, I called him up, and this is Bob, this is Bob Bruzek. He's, oh, Bob, he's, God, I'm so glad I've been worried about you thinking, you know, if you're going to make it back. He said, I'd love to put you right back to work. I says, well, I don't have a car, I don't have a vehicle yet. I just got back, and I've got to look for one. He says, do yourself a favor. He says, go out this coming weekend, see if you can find yourself a car, and be at Hall Printing and Roto Print next Monday morning, because we've got two huge four-color printing presses that we're putting in. Find yourself a car. So I went out and went down uh, 22nd Street, which is Cermak Road, from Berwyn into Cicero, looking at the car dealerships, and I see Pontiac, Bartel Pontiac. I see this car, second row back, out in the brand new, sitting out there. I'm just starting to walk around the car, and I'm really liking it. Black interior, and it's got red line tires on it. I knew nothing about GTOs at the time. And there I am, standing behind the car, with dual exhaust, one on each side, and I'm thinking, Oh, boy, I want it. <laughs> we go back inside. He says, what have you got for a trade-in? I says, I don't have a trade-in. I says, I just got back from the service. He says, well, I'll tell you what. He says, since you're in the service, he says, I'm going to give you a $500 discount right off the bat. Now, $500 at that time was, that was a good chunk of change. good chunk of change. I had saved $2,000 while I was in Vietnam. I sent the money home. My mother put it in a, an account for me. I gave him a $50 deposit on the car. I went back, my savings and loan, I took out the $2,000 that I'd saved, went right back. And for you two got years, your GTO. And I got this GTO. You know? Man, you're, you're blessed. Oh, you got yes. a job, you yes. got a car. Correct. And Correct. by the way, we Correct. should point out that this GTO is still in your possession. It still is. I've restored it three times, once in the late 70s, I restored it in the late 80s, and then the late 90s. And I'm all restored out, <laughs> you know. So do you sometimes consider that you're a really fortunate guy? Oh, yeah. That and, you had and, a trade, you went in, way. you went into the recruiting office. Every way. Mm -hmm. You're a CB, you get a bump in pay and rank and everything. You go mm -hmm. over there and you there were some risks. But For you sure. came home, you had a job and a car. I was lucky. Yeah, you're correct. I just... I. I just you know, like the stars all lined up for me. In June, three years ago, 2019, you were on the first Honor Flight Chicago mission for Vietnam vets. Yes. And I had the great honor and pleasure of being guardian for you. Yes, you were. And for Jake Jacobson, a fellow CB. And I want to ask you about that experience because you said afterwards that this is the first time in over 50 years that we've been thanked. Actually, the first time was in 1986 when the city of Chicago threw a veterans the welcome Vietnam home welcome home parade for the for the Vietnam veterans and you, you were know, there I was there people were blowing kisses they wanted to talk to us and it was the first time that I think that any of us really started thinking, wow. I remember one building under construction. They were up about the sixth or seventh deck. Construction guys with hard hats were holding up a big four-by-eight sheet of plywood with welcome back home vets and waving to us and waving their hard hats at us. And it was just unbelievable. 
it just it just felt really good. So now we uh, we move forward from that point in time, which was a cleansing experience, I suspect, to uh, the flight when uh, you're with Jake and everybody else on this first flight for Vietnam vets. Yeah, yeah. What, what were you thinking when that flight came to be? Were you kind of wondering, how am I going to react when I see the wall and find those two names that you were going to look for? I, I heard about the honor flight somewhat a while, while back. Not that I didn't pay much attention to it, but it didn't come on my mind as to what it's going to be like. We got on the plane, and when we got on the plane, it was kind of quiet because when you take, you know, 100 men from four different services, uh, and it was kind of quiet. Guys were talking, but we would only talk about, you know, talk with the people around us. On the way back, I mean, it was a beautiful day, and on the way back, it was like a bunch of little old ladies cackling, but we were talking like crazy. I mean, this was great, that was great, this surprise was just so much, this was so fantastic. Our uh, Vietnam Memorial, which was just uh, just in its quietness, it, it was so strong, and it it's spoke just un- unbelievable. This was your first time there. We were there before years ago, but it was on a rainy day, and we didn't really see much. And, and you it were wasn't not with other veterans. Yeah, not 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 the, this time. It's with veterans, and we were all, you know, uh, it was appreciated. And you had your ball cap with the laminated article about Guy and Gilliland right. inside the right, cap. Right, right inside, inside my cap. I sure did. To to try and to to, to describe it. I don't think I've ever found, in the, in the meantime, I have uh, volunteered for Honor Flight, and I have never found a guy who's been on the flight that has anything bad to say about it. It was fantastic. Most of the guys will, will, will say that it was, it was something that they've never, never expected this, this late in life. It's, it's been a, a life changer. Welcome home, Bob. Bob, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. Thank you. I'm I'm, 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 I'm spacious. When you're walking through the terminal there and and people are cheering and everything, and and there's your wife, there's Sharon. Yeah, yeah. And I know that was a special moment for you. Definitely, definitely. We weren't even out of the uh, the overhead tunnel, and we we heard music like bagpipes, and we thought, oh, what, what's that's going on, and everything. I'm shaking the hands of all the people as as I'm going down, and there were little kids waving flags, and and they're they're holding their hands out, and I'm thinking, wow, this this is something. What did what did your wife say to you when you? Grabbed her and gave her a kiss. Oh, Jesus, Bob, this is how was it? It was undescribable. And when I got home, my wife had about 10 or 15 American flags stuck in the ground on our grass from one end of the property line to the other end. (laughs) I thought, holy smoke, this is so great. That was a great day. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy I was able to share it with you. you it know was what? a great day. Uh, same here. With the first flight of the new year, we will surpass 10,000 veterans flown by wow. Honor Flight Chicago wow. to the nation's capital. That's a good feeling. It sure is. Yeah. Looking forward to the next group. I'll see you out there. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much. Thank you.
hope you found today's Honor Thank Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.